Welcome back to the FrameLab podcast. Hey, George. Hi, Gil. Well, we kind of have an interesting freeform special episode today. And for me, it's sort of a dream come true as someone who's not a cognitive scientist or a linguist, but who has done a lot of reading and research into things like, you know, cognitive science, uh, your books, uh, books on social psychology and persuasion. It's, uh, it's fun to be able to sit and talk with you about how some of these mechanisms work. I like to call them Jedi mind tricks. Uh, some people call them cognitive illusions. Uh, basically, the idea being that there are ways that our brains work that if you understand them well, makes communication easier, whether that's positive communication to make people do good things or to try to urge people to do good things. Or, in other hands, it's the tricks of the trade used by con men, uh, manipulators, advertisers to make you want or act in ways that maybe normally you wouldn't without such influence. So today what we want to do is talk about some different aspects of how the brain works through the lens of cognitive illusions. Uh, Ralph Dobelli has a great book called The Art of Thinking Clearly, which kind of acts as a dictionary of some of these sorts of effects um, and illusions. And so we're going to use that as a guide to some extent, as well as the work of others, and talk about some interesting stuff today. Well, I think about it very differently as a cognitive scientist. And the reason is that I study the way people really reason. And real reason uses things like frames, which we know about. It uses conceptual metaphors that we've been talking about. Uh, it uses uh, narratives uh, it uses imagery. It uses the logic of emotions. Emotions do have logics, and so on. That is the way people really reason. It's only when you contrast real reason with um, uh, an idealistic view of reason that came from Descartes way back in 1650 uh, that says reason is like logic, like mathematical logic and so on, uh, that that is what rationality is. That if you believe in that, then all of these things seem like illusions uh, rather than the products of real reason that may not always give you things that are real in the world that can fool, fool you or other people, uh, but that is normal and that uses normal methods of thought. So they're not just illusions. And the point is to look at each of these things that are illusory that are not may not be true as what happens when the real reason uh, works in cases that you have to watch out for let's give people some examples here because I think um, you know we've we've done a little job there of explaining uh, the overall concept but it may be hard for some people to grasp without hearing these named and explained separately so let's start out with number one on our list here the clustering illusion uh, the clustering illusion is the idea that we tend to see patterns in things even when there's no pattern. Our brain will find a pattern, detect a pattern. In The Art of Thinking, clearly, 
Rolf Dobelli uh, talks about people who see the Virgin Mary in a piece of burned toast or the face of Jesus on a tortilla. Or another famous one is, you know, there's the picture from Mars in the 70s and people see a face on Mars. And people think, well, there must be a civilization because this looks like a face, but actually it's just a rock formation and shadows. So uh, the human brain, does it seek patterns and rules? Explain to us a little bit the, the clustering illusion and why it works that way. Well, first, take a more common case, the man in the moon. Most people see, you know, look at the moon and a full moon, and they'll see a face. And it's kind of romantic. It's very sweet. Mm. And if you've seen pictures of the moon up close, uh, photographs or you know, looked in the telescope, there's no man there. But uh, it's still kind of nice. It doesn't hurt, hurt anybody to see the man in the moon. It's a kind of sweet thing. You you know look up at the full moon and uh, you're with your wife or your girlfriend or whatever, and you say, "Hey, look at the man in the moon." Uh, and that's not an illusion that hurts anybody. It doesn't hurt you. It's actually a, a pleasant one, uh, which comes about in a very basic way. In fact, the same way we're going to see over and over. Uh, your mind is working in terms of your brain. You think with your brain, with your neural system. And uh, one of the ways that neural systems work is that uh, neural circuitry forms what are called gestalt structures. That is, these are neural circuits with the following properties. That um, you have um, one uh, collection of neurons called a node uh, and uh, a set of other, con uh, which are connected to other neurons, uh, which we will call roll neurons. And what will happen is when a number of the roll neurons are activated, they will activate the whole gestalt. And this is how frames work in general. Uh, you know, a very, think a very simple case. Um, you're walking along the street, and somebody's walking by you, and they say the words Ferris wheel. And they go, go walk on. Now, a Ferris wheel uh, suggests that uh, there is uh, an amusement park, and they're talking about an amusement park event, right? So you hear the word Ferris wheel, and boom, you're in an amusement park event. That is very simple because you know what's in amusement parks. They could have said roller coaster. They should have, could have said you know, all kinds of other things in there that would have activated the idea of or the frame of an amusement park. And that's how frames work. Frames work that way, um, but uh, so do with so-called cognitive illusions uh, of the sort that you're, you're thinking about. So when you have enough of things that fit together, uh, like rock formations, you see the man on the moon. You see enough for a face. And this, artists do this all the time. You know, uh, artists will draw something with a bunch of lines on a page, and all of a sudden you see a face. Well, why do you see a face? Well, we know that uh, uh, something about uh, how faces are perceived in the brain. There's a part of the, of the brain that picks out faces and recognizes faces. But it's a part of the brain that's right next to the to the, a part of the brain that uh, picks out uh, other kinds of structures, all kinds of, of, of structures that fit together, that fit uh, individual lines and curves together to give you patterns. And faces are a special kind of pattern. So they, it takes input 
from the part of the brain that sees patterns and adds other patterns to it to give you faces. Now, this is a perfectly natural thing to, to happen and allows you to see the man in the moon. Okay? We're going to see this over and over again where uh, some part of a whole gestalt or maybe a couple of parts are enough activated to activate the entire gestalt. This gestalt could, see a, could be a face or it could be a frame or it could be all sorts of other things. We've talked mostly about how the brain creates visual patterns, you know, faces on the moon, faces on Mars, faces on a piece of toast. But what are some ways the brain creates patterns in, in politics or in narrative structures? I'm thinking of uh, some conspiracy theories which tend to form because people think they see a pattern somewhere um, in politics. You know, for instance, for years people were saying, well, there's a few people connected to the Clintons who have died mysteriously. Therefore, there's a, there's a murder conspiracy involving the Clintons. Uh, we saw it again with the pizza parlor controversy in Washington, D.C., where people were saying, well, people go to this pizza parlor, it's really popular, therefore there must be all these other conspiratorial things going on. What are some, what are some other patterns we see in, in narratives or in politics? Is there a way that this clustering illusion also applies in, in that way? Oh, it applies everywhere. Um, first, uh, it has to do with uh, what America is faced with right now of uh, two very, very different views of the world, views of the political world, uh, that uh, give rise to different views of what facts are. Uh, that's a very common thing that arises because of the brain. Why? Well, every idea you have uh, is um, uh, in your brain. Ideas don't float in the air. They are neural circuits that are activated. Now, that's a non-trivial thing when you think about it because... Uh, when you go around the world every day, you have a worldview. You understand and can frame lots and lots and lots of things, tens of thousands of things. You go around the world and you see cars and restaurants and you know trees and forests and whatever, all sorts of things that you recognize that you have knowledge about. That is all brain circuitry there. Uh, in your everyday worldview, when you go around and you don't even notice anything special, but you see thousands of things going on that you recognize instantly without any effort because you have enough built-up neural circuitry that is fixed, that is fixed in your worldview, that allows you to recognize it. And that includes politics. So if you're a conservative, you have certain conservative views, and we've talked about what they are. If you're a progressive, you have certain progressive views. Or if you're a biconceptual, or you're partly progressive and partly conservative, you have some combination of those. And um, they are part of your worldview, part of what you understand politically uh, in general. And, um, you know, so what happens when you get a fact that doesn't fit your worldview? Well, if it doesn't fit your worldview, you can only understand what your brain allows you to understand, basically. So there are certain possibilities. First, you might not notice it if it doesn't fit. A lot of things that don't fit, you don't notice at all. Uh, there's a great experiment that was done where people were pa passing around a basketball really fast. And in the middle of this, a guy in a gorilla suit comes in and goes around while people are concentrating on the basketball. And they never notice the guy in the gorilla suit. 
Right? That's the most extreme example, but mm -hmm. it's, it's a well-documented case. And uh, it's, it's a very uh, interesting thing that you, you, you may not know, notice things that other people notice when you're not concentrating on them, when you don't expect them to occur. Pickpockets also make use of these sorts of distractions in order to make you not realize that if you're looking over here, focused on some distraction they create, you don't see the hand in your pocket. That's exactly right. Very common. And the politicians do it. Uh, we have a president who creates distractions every day to distract the public away from things that are threatening He's to him. Pickpocketing the national attention span. What about the, you've been a critic of uh, pollsters who use methods that rely only on demographics. Are people maybe trying to see patterns in places where they think they exist and, and where perhaps they don't exist? Uh, well, that is a very interesting question because it also brings up the question of how statistics works. Uh, what people are doing when, when you get demographics uh, used in polls, they're sort of questions of laziness. Uh, that is, the demographics are there. They're easy to get. They're in this, in the, usually from um, you know various other surveys that you have. Uh, and every 10 years, we do a national survey of demographics. And people take those, and they say, those are the easiest things to do statistics over. So let's do the easiest thing we can in the election and use the demographics. Whereas people really vote not based on things that are demographic categories, but on their values. Now, in many cases, values car happen to correspond statistically to demographics. It does happen that there are red states and blue states and so on. There are demographic things that go along with this. It does happen that, uh, you know, African Americans tend to vote Democratic more than, uh, uh, more than Republicans, right? So there are statistical correlations with demographics. But the assumption that you can always do a survey and uh, from looking at the statistics over the demographics, get the right answer. And that's false when the real answer has to do with values. And the demographics may or may not reflect values. In the 2016 election, everybody was fooled because they thought, for example, that uh, if you had women in, in the suburbs of Philadelphia who were college educated, why uh, then they would vote for Hillary. Well, they're also Republicans. They voted Republican. And that's the suggestion that Dobelli has in his book, is to regain your skepticism. And if you sense a pattern, seek external mathematical statistical evaluation and really question whether the pattern exists as you see it or whether there might be another explanation underlying it. But the statistics themselves can lead to this, this problem. Yeah. That's, that's the, the thing. You can't just use statistics to do it, you have to beware of the statistics because the statistics don't necessarily tell you the truth. And this is extremely important. Uh, there is a statistical fallacy that people don't notice all the time. It's a kind of statistics metaphor. It's the metaphor that you are the statistic. You are the relevant uh, person that the statistics are about. So suppose you take a blood test and the results come back and they say, uh, on the basis of this test, you have a 75% chance of developing leukemia. Well, you may not. The blood test just tells you statistics. Namely, there's a bunch of people who will develop leukemia uh, and who pass this blood test, and 75% of those people will do it. But you don't know if you're one of those people. 
The thing that you may not be one of the relevant statistics. It's not necessarily about you. It's a statistical thing. And this this is this occurs constantly in in medical statistics and so on. I guess the lesson there is don't be a statistic. Let's move on to the next example here. Social proof. Now social proof is one of my favorites because it's something you see a lot in politics, a lot in advertising. And once I became aware of the idea of social proof, I really started spotting it all around me. In his book, uh, Influence, the social psychologist uh, Robert Cialdini uh, uses social proof as an example of one of the six most persuasive techniques you can use in advertising or politics. He wrote the book not so that people would use it as a weapon, but so that they could defend themselves from these sorts of of influential tricks. Unfortunately, most people who read the book, I think, read it to learn about how to influence people. So social proof is also known as the herd instinct. And that the, the overall meaning of that is that humans tend to value uh, more greatly things which other people find valuable. They want to be a part of the consensus. They want to be in the group of people doing something that's popular. Uh, according to the people who research this, this is part of an ingrained survival instinct. Um, so some examples of that are when an ad tells you that 90% of people like brand X or uh, when there are lines outside of popular clubs or ice cream shops to sort of create for people the uh, projection that there's a great demand for this product. It makes you want to, to, to get in line as well. I've got a little story about that I'll tell later. Or another example is laugh tracks in sitcoms. Here are the spots where they're telling you, laugh now. And if you hear other people laughing, you realize, oh, that's supposed to be funny. Or if you're at a concert and one person starts clapping and then everybody starts clapping, right? There's these kind of, uh, this effect of you want to be a part of the group, a part of the bigger group, and uh, do what's popular to a certain extent. What do, what's your take on social proof, George? Uh, it works, again, uh, via the notion of frames that define social norms. That is, what is a social norm? It's the way you're supposed to behave. That is, there's a frame for your behavior, for the normal behavior of people. And the question is, are you one of those people? And then, what kind of a norm is it? Is it something that uh, people who are smart do? Is it something that people who are well-informed do? Is it something that people of good taste do? So there are norms for people of good taste, people of intelligence, uh, you know, people who are well-informed, etc., and uh, or just normal folks. And you have different frames for different social norms. So the question, given uh, behavior of other people, is, one, is this a social norm? Uh, is it a kind of social norm I should be following or want to follow? Or do I want people to appear that I am well-informed like this? How, what is my view of myself? Uh, what view do I have of who I want and what I want to project about onto the world? That's what Facebook is about. You know, How do you want to project your image of yourself onto the world, which we are doing every day? Um, you know, We have a famous book called the, the Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. We present ourselves in certain ways. And um, what's called, what, what is called the herd instinct is more like that. It has to do with following social norms of, the, of, the certain, of a certain kind, framing them in a certain way because all norms are framed. So it comes down to, again, since frames have to do with neural circuitry, what kind of neural circuitry do you have 
for framing social norms of certain kinds in certain contexts. And then the question is, uh, what does this have to do with the presentation of self? And, uh, and it has everything always to do, because you're always concerned with the presentation of self. Yeah, unconsciously, automatically, every time you comb your hair or, or choose what kind of shirt to put on, you know, you're concerned with the presentation of self. Do you think that, as DeBelli says in the book, some of this comes from our evolution as social animals who had to work together to um, survive, basically? And that, so we developed this instinct to be aware of what the herd is doing. The example he uses in in his book is, you know, if, say you're standing, you know, you, you're, you're a caveman and you're standing with a group of other cave people and suddenly everybody starts to run. Do you stop and wait and see what everybody's running from or do you assume that everybody is running from a lion or a tiger or, a, or some other threat? Well, you assume it, but again, this is a just-so story. The question is why and uh, are we neurally set up for that? You know, uh, yes, there are neural systems that have to do with fear and that activate fear. And the idea of a, uh, you know, fight, you know, flight or fight instinct is not an instinct. It's a neural system that is set up for that. And we know something about the parts of the brain that are activated for fear and what happens and what they're connected to. Now, uh, so the idea that there are these things, these instincts that happen, that this, you know, by magic happened sometime, uh, you know, when we were cavemen or something like that, uh, you know, those are just so stories. Uh, they all have to do with the development of neural systems. One example that comes to mind to me is that once I was standing outside of um, a popular ice cream shop uh, here in Berkeley, and it was a line. There's always usually a line there. And... A woman got in line behind us, and after about five minutes, she asked, excuse me, what is this line for? And we said, <laughs> ice cream. But to me, that stuck out as an example of social proof in action. You know, she saw there was a long line. There must be something going on here. Let's get in the line. And then she finally got up the courage to say, what's the line for? And as I recall, she got out of the line once she found out it was a line for uh, overpriced ice cream. But... Uh, it's something you see a, a lot, I think, in politics as well. That's why campaigns are always trying to push polls out there that show favorable um, ratings for their candidates. You know, if you got 65 percent of the vote or 70 percent of the vote and you're winning, you want everybody out there who has not made their mind up yet to be hit with the idea that the popular thing to do, that the, the, the winning candidate, the thing that most people want is this. Right. Right now, it's, uh, for instance, in the gubernatorial race, it's Gavin Newsom leading everybody. And so you have a lot of polls coming out that show that lead. And if you're on that campaign, then you want people to see those positive polls because undecided voters might make up their mind based on who's going to win. On the other hand, you get ads uh, from uh, on, on your uh, email coming in that says, disasters, we're losing, uh, give $3 right away. Well, you mean the Democratic Party. Democratic yeah, Party yeah, does this. Yeah, right. from... Uh, but, but the ice cream story is wonderful because I know that ice cream shop. And its name is carefully chosen. It's spelled I-C-I, which um, can be either pronounced icy or in French, ici. Ici is, this is the place. Mm -hmm. So it says, this is the place. But it only says it to people who know French. Yeah. So it has to do with uh, people who see themselves as sophisticated and uh, being willing to pay money for high-priced food uh, 
which you know pe people who go to France do. So it's a very common kind of kind of thing that that is being used there. Uh, it is uh, it's a message that through the language uh, to people of a certain kind uh, who have certain views of who they are, certain self self uh, identifications, presentations of self. Being the line in that line is a presentation of self. I had also once joked when I first found out about social proof that one day there might be an app to uh, where people could rent lines outside of their new restaurant or business in order to convince people that this was a very popular happening spot. I meant that as a joke, but I believe last year there was an app that launched and probably crashed already to do just that, to bring a line, a rented line to your business so that people would think that it's a hot happening spot and would try it out because, you know, getting new customers is always the toughest Thing. So I'd say to people out there, if you look around you now and you know that uh, that marketers and advertisers know that people are very, very likely to want to do things that seem popular or that lots of other people are doing, you'll find examples of social proof all around you. Uh, well, constantly, but again, these are presentations of self. Let's talk about the idea of reciprocity. Reciprocity... Uh, is the idea that when someone helps us or gives us something for free, we feel obligated as human beings, most of us anyway, to give something back to them. Uh, the idea here is that this is, was a beneficial survival strategy to share with others while we are in the wild and in groups and expect others to share with us. And so there's this ingrained um, desire, and maybe we were just all brought up with good manners, that if somebody does something for us, we should do something for them. If someone helps us, we should help them. If someone gives us something for free, we have an obligation perhaps to uh, do something uh, for them if they so request it. Um, we see this appear in advertising and marketing in multiple ways. For instance, when you're offered a free gift to buy something, you know, it's not really free. The price of that gift is built into whatever you're going to pay for the product that you, they want you to buy. But the free part is marketing because everybody wants something for free. And if you get something for free, maybe you should also do something for the people giving you something for free. It's a way to, to build trust. Um, another example is when the March of Dimes sends you that dime in the mail uh, in an envelope and you got to open the envelope to take out the dime. But what do you do? Just take the dime and throw the rest of it away. These are people who are trying to help vulnerable you know, children and people who are sick. And so if they can send you a dime, can't you send them a dollar or five or whatever? Same thing when a environmental group sends you a bunch of free postcards, but they also want you to sign up. So what do you do? Do you throw the postcards away? Do you keep the postcards? If you keep the postcards, shouldn't you sign up and become a member of the organization? Um, free samples in the supermarket is another, or in the mall. You know, someone gives you a bite of something for free, but they want you to buy the product. Or the, the worst to me is when you're walking through a mall and you've got these people trying to sell you the facial serums or the dead sea salts, and it's free, 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 but you know it's not free. The moment you take it, you're in a conversation, you're in a dialogue, you're in a high-pressure sales pitch. So reciprocity, George, why is it that people feel obligated to do something once you do something for them? Well, there's a general conceptual metaphor that is very widespread uh, that um, I've written about a lot. It has to do with the idea that um, doing something that good that's good for someone is giving them money. So when uh, you do somebody a favor, they say, how can I ever thank you? Uh, I'm in your debt. I owe you one. 
things like that, where the words like owe and debt show up all the time. I owe you a debt of gratitude. Um, that expression says just that. In German, the word schuld is the word both for um, uh, a monetary debt and guilt uh, that you feel because you, you know, have done something and it's not, you know, that you haven't uh, paid paid for in some way. And notice you pay for your crimes and so on. That is the, those, the, that notion of, uh, similarly, when you do something bad for something, you know, you're supposed to be paying for it. That is, uh, you give money for it. And that is um, a very common metaphor. It's uh, very widespread. Um, and when you actually have real money, you are expected to pay. You know, that real money works in a way that's very different from just doing people favors. And the the return can be just a thank you. It can be a thank you note. So, so you're invited to dinner, you give a thank you note, or somebody does something for you, you send them a thank you note. So the idea of thank you notes are ways of um, paying back, and so on. We have uh, things like that, too. And similarly, getting something for free is exactly like they're doing something for you, so you now have a debt to them in some sort. And so this is part of our conceptual systems. It's part of the system of unconscious metaphors that we live in terms of, that we live by. Uh, it's there. It's not an instinct that has just happened to be randomly there. It's something that comes into our, our modes of reasoning, our conceptual systems, that are not reasoning like logic, but are reasoning based on mostly unconscious conceptual metaphors. So it seems that debt really has a moral meaning. Debt has a definite moral meaning. You know, that's very important because it says this is doing something good for someone. And that has to do with ethics, morality, empathy, and so on. So, yeah, debt definitely has a moral meaning. And you're supposed to be a good person if you pay your debts. You know, you're, you, know you, you don't owe anything. Mm -hmm. It's important not to owe. So debt is often seen as a bad thing to, to have. At the same time, isn't there a positive part? If it's debt on one hand, but... Indebtedness can mean kind of a bad thing, that you're, you're, you're to be moral by paying your debt. You owe something. You're a bad person who's in debt and must pay it back. But in a way, doesn't reciprocity also get at the idea at the very heart of America? Absolutely. The idea that citizens care about other citizens uh, is there, but it's not like you expect something back for it. And that's what's so interesting about it. Care is not necessarily something that you expect to get something back for. It's not something that you give in order to get. But isn't it something where you give because others have given to you? Isn't that the idea? That's the way it's often put. That is, you give because others have given it to you. It's what you owe. It's seen uh, in many cases as a debt to you owe a debt to society, and many people think of it that way. It's often portrayed that way um, by certain uh, political philosophers. Uh, but there's another way of thinking about it, which is it is simply that you care. It is simply that you have empathy. And empathy is something that is built into us. Uh, we have a capacity for empathy. 
which we could go into in, in greater detail. There's a neural capacity, and I can you know, tell you what it is and how it develops and, and, uh, and where, how it works. But the fact is that we have a neural capacity for empathy to be able to see things, except some people have less of this capacity than others. Uh, but it can show up in people's brains. So reciprocity and empathy are great as a citizen, but watch out for the free samples in the mall. Let's uh, move on to another concept here that really connects, I think, with your work in a very important and clear way, the authority bias. Do you want to say a little bit about what the authority bias is? Well, there are two versions of it. There's a strict father version, which says that, um, you know, uh, people in authority should be, in be should be obeyed and that the people who in authority deserve to be in authority, uh, and um, they're the people that you, know, you should obey, and that other people should obey if they have authority over you, period. And uh, you know, so you have a strict father version of that that applies in politics, it applies in everyday life in terms of the police and things like that. But there's also a question of deserving authority, so there's a nurturant version of authority where parents who are being good parents, taking care of their children and you know, uh, treating them well and so on, uh, deserve to be treated as authority. There are other people who, who deserve to be treated with authority, doctors, uh, people who are experts on things and so on. Uh, there are reasons why you treat some people with authority with a, a, a respect that goes with it. And uh, it's a, a very uh, normal thing to do. The underlying concept here being that we tend to lend a lot of credibility to figures of authority or people we consider authoritative. And this is good many times, like when you listen to a doctor and take steps to be, become healthy or when you put your trust in the airline pilot who will safely deliver you to your destination. But there's also a a potential for grave error when people uh, listen to authority only and don't question the underlying assumptions made by the authority because they are conferring all of the power onto the authority figure. And so you can also also be misled. I mean, back in the um, back in the good old days, uh, you know, doctors. Uh, there were all kinds of quack doctors, people pretending to be doctors, people kind of believing in things like that cigarettes were healthy because cigarette companies got doctors to say they were healthy. Or, you know, what was it? I think Paul Mall, one of the cigarette brands was the most smoked by doctors, yes. right? So one of the ways you see this appear in politics is you always see politicians who want to get uh, doctors or police officers or nurses or some trusted figures, firefighters is another one, in their ads to show their endorsement because if these good people who you trust and respect like me, then why shouldn't you like me? Um, that's the kind of way authority tends to operate in our political system. And it's there are put, good and bad parts of that. It's putting norms together with the issue of authority. That is, if people have a norm of obeying certain authorities and seeing certain authorities, authorities clustering themselves with other authorities, then you, you put all the things we've been talking about together and you get that effect. Do you think that conservatives tend to use the authority bias in their politics more than, more than progressives, or do you think it's equal and different? I think it's equal and different. I think it's a totally different thing. Progressives um, 
very often have this notion of authority. That one thing that comes to mind is um, uh, there's a uh, well-known uh, uh, woman senator who was one of the first women senators. Uh, uh, and uh, at one point, somebody um, uh, said to her in the floor of Congress, uh, thank you, ma'am. And she said, the appropriate term is senator. Namely, I earned it. I've been working as a woman to do this. And, uh, you know, it, it's a, an interesting thing that I remembered. I remembered it simply because that. Because to say ma'am is to say that you have, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, a norm of being nice to women and respecting women, uh, you know, for their role as, as women. But here is a woman who wants to be respected for her role as a senator, which is not easy for a woman to do. And, uh, and and made a point of it because it is a political point. So having that authority respected. Having the authority respected because it was well-earned and earned in the right way. Let's move on to the next concept here, the story bias. The idea behind the story bias is pretty simple. It's that humans are wired for storytelling. This kind of connects to the earlier clustering illusion, the idea that we our brains tend to detect patterns, even if there's not a pattern in existence. So a story is a way in which we impose narratives and meaning and significance on sets of events. Even if upon further inspection, it turns out the story was not exactly correct or true, uh, we tend to tell stories about ourselves, about other people, about things that happened. And hearing something said in a story is a great way to reach people, to engage their interest, and to some degree to convince them. You know, even if the story, again, going back to the example of conspiracy theories, even if the story is not true, people tend to remember a story more than they would remember different sets of, of separate, if they heard the separate facts, they might not see a story, uh, or they might not see a connection. But if you wind it all together with a story, then, you know, the connections become clear, even if there aren't really connection. So why are we wired for storytelling, George? A story is a complex frame we're wired for uh, getting, um, putting together uh, frames, which are neural circuits, and getting more complex, complex neural circuits. But more than that, we live our lives in terms of stories, stories about who we are. What is a biography? A biography is a story about someone's life. And there are different kinds of stories about different people's, about a, a single people's life. There's not just one. But we tend to have stories about our lives. And therapy uh, is very often correcting people's stories about themselves. So, uh, for example, there's the Cinderella story, you know, that uh, someday my prince will come. You know, I'm just, you know, this poor, this poor, not very nice person, but someday my prince will come. Uh, there's a movie out um, uh, with Amy uh, um, uh, Schumer. Schumer. Drop Amy, Amy Schumer, Schumer into this. There's <laughs> Amy Schumer here, but there you know where it's uh, you know uh, where she just wakes up one day, she bangs her head and decides she feels beautiful, and has a different story about her life, and it changes her life because she acts differently based on the story she has about her life. That's what what's, uh, clinical psychologists uh, discovered ages ago. Freud discovered this. That is, we have stories about what our lives are like, and we all do. And the question is, um, that, uh, what is how does that affect what we do? 
This is re entirely related to the presentation of self. Uh, Facebook, as we saw, has to do with the presentation of self and is the story we tell about ourselves. And the evidence for that are the pictures you put on Facebook and the, what you tell people about and your achievements and what you like and what you don't like. You know, uh, those are presentations of self which have to do with the story you're telling about your life. And that is that kind of story is very important because there's a structure to stories. Uh, my undergraduate thesis, believe it or not, was about fairy tales and the structure of fairy tales, myths, uh, etc., and, um, and literature based on uh, mythology. And the idea there is that there's a structure to all of these kinds of stories. Uh, a common uh, one in the fairy tale structure is that you have a complication and a resolution. Complication is something's going wrong, there's a threat, something bad has happened or might happen, uh, there's a villain around, and so on. And then there's a resolution. You defeat the villain, you get over the problem, etc., and that resolves it. right? And uh, very often you have um, uh, a story about how you resolve problems in your life. That could be part of your life story. There are other very important parts of, uh, of stories that are there. Politicians want to put out a good story. What is a political book about? A political book is about, here is my presentation of my life that shows you that I will be a good political leader. That's what the political book is for. Donald Trump was a hell of a storyteller in the 2016 campaign, right? It was all this hero narrative, the art of the deal, plus the sort of the hero who will ride into town, take no guff from anybody, set all accounts straight, and and that'll be that. Right? You, got, you got it. Exactly right. That was the story. Make America great again. There's a story. It used to be great, but it's gone bad because you don't have the right strong leaders. And that, and every story he tells, you know, he this, you know, Obama made a bad deal with Iran or something like that. You know, it's constant. It's that constant story over and over. So it was the idea that he could transpose his personal fairy tale of massive success that's actually bankruptcy and failure at every turn and superimpose that onto the story of America, which according to the Republican Party is always in decline when Democrats are in charge, even though the opposite of that is true. That we always go up with Democrats. We always go down with Republicans. And so part of it was tapping into the, the number of people who wanted to hear that story and with whom that story resonated. In a big way, a campaign is telling a story and trying to tell the story that people want to hear and want to be a part of. And so um, it's storytelling in that greater narrative sense, but we also drill down and see the power of individual narratives. I mean, uh, Barack Obama started with his books, Dreams from My Father, um, you know, was an important book that brought his story to millions of people in terms of, you know, I was raised by a single mother uh, between two cultures in, in multiple places from Hawaii to, um, you know, the Midwest. And this kind of helped to create this myth of Obama as this kind of perfect synthesis of the American story. Um, you know, Trump did quite the, quite the opposite, um, you know, telling a, a dramatically different story. But what we see with the power of storytelling, there's good parts of it. But there's also bad parts of it. But the media is all about stories. And, and this is very, very important. Uh, first of all, uh, when you have, uh, you go on CNN or something like that, and they've got a panel of experts, and the experts are arguing about which frame will fit best. 
which pattern will fit best to what's going on here, and they'll each give their version of the pattern that fits best. They're arguing for their version of the story. But reporters have stories. They're called stories. They have to have a story to present. The news is not just a list of random facts. They have to fit it into some kind of story. News is always about stories. The media is like that. There's a, there's this um, interesting thing came out about Trump uh, when um, uh, he was a developer trying to get more money for developers, and he can raise more money if it looks like he already has a lot of money because that means he's been a success. And apparently at one point he took on a pseudonym, uh, John Barron, and called Forbes magazine to try to get Forbes to get him Trump, or to get Trump, he claimed to see someone in Trump's organization, listed as one of the, the world's richest men in the Forbes list. And, you know, that was what he, what he did. He managed to get, with some success, get himself listed. And the point there was that is if he could be listed in the media as being a success, then he would become successful. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. Right? That's a story narrative there. So stories, another really powerful, powerful mechanism for – so whenever you hear a story being told, you got to figure out who's telling the story, from whose perspective is the story told, and what is the purpose of the story. In a way, this is all directly connected to framing. Oh, it's all framing. But this is about history too. Uh, I once did a study of types of history. There are only a small number of t things that count as a history. Uh, there is the rise and fall of the Roman Empire or whoever. There's the grand battle his, uh, history. Uh, there's the developmental history, how things develop over time, like just like a person grows up and develops. Uh, you know, um, you know the the uh, the birth of democracy kind of thing, where it starts here and it's going to develop. And uh, you have a small number of stories that count as histories. The word histoire in French is story, right? And it becomes history. A history is a story about something, about events. And there are only a small number of types of things that can count as a history. Our last one here today, and we had a bunch more, but these things require some discussion. And so it, uh, we're going to have to save some for later and have a second episode on some of these Jedi mind tricks is the Forer effect or the Barnum effect. Anybody who's ever been to a, a palm reader or a fortune teller or read a horoscope will recognize the Forer effect. That's where a collection of somewhat general statements are made to say, well, let me see, George. I see that you have been a very successful person, but there are still things that you want to do. And uh, there are people who have been in your way but there are other people who've been helping you and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, all of that could apply to anybody in any situation, but it's the use of these general statements to convince people that you have specific knowledge about them, you know, especially if you're a con person or a, a psychic or someone in, in one of those trades or arts. But in reality, your mind is personalizing this general information and is finding the pattern and the connection to your own life. When in reality, how could, you know, a billion Leos in the world all have the same damn horoscope um, for the same week? Well, that's true, but there's something left out of this picture. Prototypes. Uh, there are prototypical examples of general states, and they may be different for different kinds of people. So, you know, uh, 
you say, uh, okay, uh, he's a Gemini. He uh, can't he can't decide one one way or the other. He always thinks of two possibilities or something like that. And um, that uh, view, a lot of people think of two possibilities, but it fits a certain kind of person, a certain kind of personality, a stereotypical personality uh, of the sort. And this depends upon things like prototypes and stereotypes, which are part of categorization strategies that we have. Categories are not just, you know, list of properties. Aristotle didn't get it right. We have prototypical central cases, and they extend to other kinds of cases by general principles. I have a, a large book on this called Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things, which goes through uh, all of the... Um, uh, you know, the, the structure of prototypes in general and how categories really work. And this has, again, something that's important for, that came out in cognitive science. We think of categories not in terms of, of just, you know, general properties about the world, but in terms of uh, special cases that we have that are central cases, that are typical cases, that arise normally, and that we know lots about. So that's why... You know, someone who's, say, an Aries or a Gemini is like, oh, that's totally me. I'm such a Gemini because they are buying into the prototype that's already there. That's right. But does that mean it's always true? No. I mean, it can't be true at all, right? People are psychologically sorting themselves according to given prototypes. That's the idea. They're sorting themselves according to given prototypes, and they know those prototypes. How do we know them? You learn them through experience. You know, you learn them all, all around you. Uh, you know, they're in our culture. You learn them from cultural knowledge. Uh, you learn them from stories that you read. You learn them from the media. Uh, the media depends on prototypes. All sorts of things in the media assume certain stereotypes and prototypes in a news story. They don't have to tell you everything. They tell you enough to, add, to activate a, proto a prototype. Actually, I was thinking of um, this weekend in L.A. I saw there was a a psychic in a doorway waiting for customers and sort of standing by the door trying to get people to come in. And I thought, well, if you're a psychic, don't you already know if people are going to come in or not today? Is it going to be a slow day or, or a busy day? And I also thought, well, if I were a psychic and I were trying to uh, get people to come in, what I would say instead of, would you like to come in? I would stand, step out and say, I've been waiting for you. You know, you're interested. You're, you have a question, right? Everybody has a question. Right, and also, if you're a psychic, you should be waiting for your customer because you know they're coming already. But that would be a, a possible use of the the four effect. Um, well, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with the brains, George, and I think pe more people need to know about this stuff, and maybe they would understand a little better uh, what your critique is of the way that people who believe in enlightenment reason tend to approach questions of persuasion and influence. Well, with enlightenment reason, you believe a certain number of things. The first thing you believe is that um, thought is all conscious when it's 98% unconscious, and it's unconscious because you think with your neural system, with your brain, and you have no, no conscious access to the way your neural system is working. So most thought is unconscious, but you believe it's all conscious. The second thing you believe, if you believe in enlightenment reason, is that it all works by logic, as if it were in a mathematical proof or something, and it doesn't work like that at all. Thought works by frames, conceptual metaphors, narratives, imagery, uh, emotional logic, and so on. 
you know, that's how people really think. And all of these so-called illusions have to do with things that come about because you really think that way, not necessarily because the world is that way. Another part of uh, enlightenment reason says that your reason, uh, your logic can fit the world directly as it does. And in fact, your reason does not fit the world. You create an understanding of the world a lot of the time, perhaps most of the time. You usually don't have anything like uh, that kind of evidence. If you know something about the visual system, what actually comes into your, your um, visual system of your brain is very, very little, tiny, compared to what you create. You create images of the world that are relatively accurate because of you know the the world is is as the world is and it's there and you're you are uh you've learned enough about it to create from this very very small amount of evidence like seeing the man in the moon you know basically seeing the world is like seeing the man in the moon uh in many many cases except the world is there because it is fixed fixed for you and you've experienced it over and over and over from the time you were born and even before you were born wait are you saying the man in the moon is not there the man in the moon is not physically in the moon. You know, your pictures of the moon, of the, you know, the astronauts didn't find the man there. But you see it, and you see it, and it's nice. You enjoy it. It's romantic. It doesn't harm anybody. It helps people. It's good. Enjoy the man in the moon. It's all in your mind. It, but it's not bad that it's in your mind because your mind is wonderful. Your mind enables you to do all the things you do. It enables you to see the world. It enables you to see colors. Colors are not out there in the world. There is no red in blood, no blue in the sky, no green in grass. Colors are created by uh, physical systems. The fact that you have color cones in your, eye, in your retina uh, they are a uh, small number of these things. People who are colorblind don't have all of the right color cones. Uh, they are connected to your neural systems. And as a result, you create colors. And we, we create colors in certain ways, but not all the same. Men and women don't all create colors in the same way because their uh, the uh, color cones in their eyes depend upon X chromosomes. This reminds me of that. What what color was the dress? You know, there was, there's occasionally a scandal that pops up where women and men see different colors. They do see different colors. They actually see different colors because the color cones in their eyes depend on their chromosomes. So there's no red, there's no blue, there's just more worldviews that are contained in your neurocircuitry. Well, it's not that. What there is is reflections. There are, you know, you, you, um, objects in the world reflect combinations of wavelengths. Wavelengths and combinations of wavelengths are not colors. But our bodies, our physical bodies, with our, our eye, our color cones, you don't see just with your eyes, and your neural system together, all of that create color for you. And colors are beautiful. They're wonderful. And they're very good for survival. On that wavelength, that's all for this week. See you all next time.